The Saint of the Wilderness, also known as Brother Sheffy, by Jess Carr, Chapter 16, Part 1. In the fall of 1883, Robert concluded one of the most extensive evangelistic campaigns of his career. The age of 63 hardly seemed a stage of life to be taking on so much new territory. Eliza had argued, but he went nonetheless and came back triumphant. Eliza, the Lord be praised. I knew it was going to be a good trip the day we finished the service at Old Town in Grayson County. We kept moving south and west after that and made a circle of 300 miles, I judge. I've missed you, Robert. You've been gone over a month on this trip, and Eddie and I have been worried, to say the least. What need to worry? Everywhere I met God's children, and it was no different than our own little church here at uh, Staffordsville. Uh, there are no strangers, and certainly no uh, harm doers to a carrier of the word. Eddie stabled his father's horse, stabled his father's horse, and returned to the house with a glow of excitement in his blue eyes. The youth was now a head taller than his father, and reflected the lean masculinity so prevalent on the Stafford side of his parentage. The boy's handsome face had the same look of bright expectancy so characteristic in his mother, and it was with the full impact of this engaging personality that he approached his father. Papa, has Mama told you about me yet? No, but if the sweet Lord has blessed you like he has me over the past few weeks, why, we've been into North Carolina at Skull Camp, and as far as West as Bluntville, Tennessee, came home by way of Scott County in western Virginia. But Papa, you must stop and hear me first. Mine won't take so long, Eddie said. Tell me then, Robert said, but I'm suspicious already, for you and your mother have both bright and secretive countenances. Papa... I have been offered a job in the city of Lynchburg, and I will earn almost twice the much the amount of wages I'm earning. That's nearly a hundred miles away from home, Robert began. Hear the boy out, Robert. Don't be sure it's not a gift of providence. It worked out almost like that. About the time you left on your trip, Papa, a drummer I saw in Parisburg told me of a job with the Nolan Brothers Grocery Company. I wrote to them, and he vouched for me. Well, they're willing to give me a chance on the job. Eddie would work six months on trial, and then the position would be his, if the company liked his work, Eliza added. But son, you're only 17 years old, and it's not like I had a brother there to look after. Papa, it's been like I was on my own since I was 15. The drummer said, says this work will lead to a white-collar job and a whole lot bigger responsibilities. The boy gave all the additional verbal ammunition he had. 
Robert suspected, and it was rehearsed to perfection. I make no decisions in this life without talking to the Lord about it first. You know that, son, and I hope if it be his will as well as that of your blessed mother, I can add my blessing also. In every private moment they had together, it was evident that Eliza favored her son in the matter. There should be no cause to ponder the matter for even a week, Eliza said. The boy has a healthy ambition and a good business head. All of his uncles think so. That's part of the reason for his wanting the job, the need he feels to pay back his uncles for the help they have given us. Yes, Robert, but there's nothing wrong in that. I can't disagree with you that God privileges many to help us while you're out laboring for him, nor can I disagree that being God's helper is reward enough without the expectation of being paid back in some cases, but it doesn't always work that way, dear husband, and when it does, it should always be a voluntary act on the part of the giver. You keep me humble, dear Eliza, and, and in touch with temporal man. Look at it this way. If Eddie feels the need to pay back much of the financial help my brothers have extended me, this very desire can be the seed of his ambition and an important step stepping stone in his character growth. I'd have to concede that's true, Robert said. I'm proud of him, Robert. We've raised a fine son. I know he's young, but I sense a righteousness in what he is asking of us. Well, maybe it will work out all right. My brothers-in-law might even smile at me more often than under the new arrangement, Robert said jovially. And you know the answer to that, too, Eliza said. There might have been a day that they thought ill of you for giving preference to your work rather than your family, but that day is no more. The tree shall be known by its fruits, or something like that. Somehow there was a joy in uh, losing to Eliza. At least he would let her think so. With his parents' blessing, Eddie took up residence in the Virginia city of Lynchburg, by Thanksgiving of that year, in early December, Robert rode off, leaving Eliza alone for the first time in her entire life. The same sparkle in her eyes, which had been his buoyant send-off across the years, bade him farewell again, but he could not help noticing that, that this sparkle was obscured by the faintest mist. Montcalm, West Virginia, was his destination, and there he would be for a week of revival services. It would be hard not to take detours all along the journey, for almost every ridge and hollow were familiar ground to which, at some time across the years, he had carried the message of the Christian gospel and witnessed the first fruits of the miraculous power of its doctrine. But his blessing had not ended there. In some families he had assisted in the conversion of three generations from the same household. It was a pleasant December day when he reached the small West Virginia village and he rode to the home of the Ellis Bailey family with whom he had been invited to stay. The Lord has certainly smiled on us this year, 
Ellis and Bailey greeted him. The weather is a little worse than early fall, and the extra room on the schoolhouse gives us more space than we've ever had before. Robert felt uplifted by the enthusiasm of his friend, and with a happy heart, he sat at the generously laden table and there held a devotional service before anyone took the first bite of food. There was no less enthusiasm demonstrated when he finished the final prayer and piled spoon upon spoon of honey on the freshly made bread. Brother Sheffy, why do you eat so much honey all the time? Every time you're here, you put honey on your bread and even on your vegetables, the youngest of the children present asked. Bless your little heart, child. No one across all these years has asked me that. He took another bite of the honey and bread and let it roll across his tongue before attempting to answer her. His dancing white whiskers soon slowed from chewing, and he patted the girl's hand. Child, a long time ago, I had a taste for sweet things, like all children, but I love honey in particular, for it is a balm to my soul of another kind also. When I was growing up, I used to drink a lot of whiskey and brandy, and when I came to love my sweet lord so much, I could still taste the ungodly nectar in my mouth even years after I no longer touched it. The honey in my mouth takes the old taste away and helps me give testimony. This one answer seemed to give birth to other questions that, before long, were coming in all directions from his host family and other guests who honored him with their presence each time he came into the community. The most unusual worship service I've ever had, you say? That won't take much thinking on, Robert said, stroking his white beard. I can't remember the year it happened for sure, but I'd say about 1860. It's funny how the sweet Lord shows us a need sometimes by the oddest sequence of events. Oh, where were you at the time? One of the guests asked. I was traveling through Tazewell County, and I stopped at a plantation home and asked if there was food enough to, to uh, for me to share. Uh, the lady of the house smelled a perfume, and her hands showed the whiteness and tenderness of disuse, but she started telling me all the food she didn't have. It was in the final weeks of winter before garden time, and she kept complaining that she didn't have fresh asparagus and snap beans, and that she was sure I wouldn't like dried apples rather than fresh applesauce. And did you finally eat there anyway? No, I didn't, Robert answered his hostess. She did not seem thankful at all for all the food she did have, and I rode away up the road a piece and went into a house that I later found out was the plantation owner's tenant owner's tenant house and ate there. The tenant family didn't have anything except potatoes, but when the woman of that shack asked me in, she was more thankful for those potatoes than any king has ever been over his banquet table. Did you ever go back to the plantation? One of the children asked. No, and I found out later I wouldn't be welcome. But anyway, I'm getting a from the experience I wanted to tell you all about. 
The woman at the house where I did eat had a husband and several children. Her man had never accepted Christ and had no intention to, she said, until a uh, goiter he had on his cheek or on his neck grew bigger and bigger so he could hardly breathe. If you could have heard him wheeze, you'd have thought what he was thinking. It was doubtful whether he could live out the winter. In any event, the sinner wanted to be baptized before he was to trod through the great beyond. The rest of his family were Baptists, and when he said baptized, he didn't mean sprinkled on the head. He meant under the water. But how could you submerge him in the cold of winter? Ellis Bailey said. That was the was part of the problem, Robert replied. The man insisted on immersion, and he seemed to have no doubt that he would die before spring, so there was no putting him off in spite of the fact that there was ice frozen over the creek from one bank to the other. You could have cut a hole in the ice with an axe, an, other, an older child said. That's what we did finally do, but not right then. We hoped it would warm up a little the next day and make it easier on the poor brother. That night, two old Indians who lived nearby brought the family some deer meat and were told by the sick man of his conversion. I've never heard a more touching testimony, and right under my nose the man converted those two heathens, and they too wanted to go down with the fish and be clean uh, for the great spirit. I couldn't understand the Indians well, but I was convinced of their sincerity and knowledge of what they were doing. The Lord be praised. We all knelt there on the floor together with our arms around each other and the sick man's wife and children crying over him happily, or so happily. The Lord may never show me for certain, but those old Indians were just as much a part of that fellowship as any man who ever stood at the altar. Did you baptize them all together? An anxious child tried to speed him along. Yes, but let's not get ahead of ourselves, Robert said. We agreed that the baptisms would take place the next afternoon at the creek below the house, and the Indians promised that they'd be there. They not only showed up on time, but each one had his squaw, and one of them brought his two daughters we chopped a hole in the ice about the size of a wash tub and baptized the white man first. He wouldn't go back to the house. He wanted to honor his red brothers with his presence, but he but we wrapped him good in a quilt. Uh, the strangest thing of all happened when I baptized the first old Indian. I let him down through the hole in the ice while holding onto his hands. In the same manner, I'd submerged the white man. When I got the Indian under, hands and all, he wrestled free from me and disappeared from view under the ice. I was beside myself to know what to do, and I'd about made up my mind that trying to save him was futile. However, I grabbed the axe and started chopping a bigger hole to find him and effect a rescue. The white man, his family, and I seemed the only ones upset, for the Indian families showed no fear or excitement. 
I'll bet the old Indian thought it was time to die, and he figured that going through the hole in the ice to the Great Father was as good a direction of, as any, Elias Bailey said half serious. No, they don't think like that, Robert said, but you're nearer right than you think. As I chopped away at the ice, I heard a gurgling sound to my rear, and the head and body of the old Indian popped up out of the water behind me. I couldn't understand his chattering words, but the tenant family said he was asking me if I had stayed down long enough to please the great father. I still didn't understand until they explained to me that the Indian had thought the longer he could stay under the water, the better baptized he was, and that it would be more pleasing to our sweet lord that way. Well, we got them all to understand that endurance had nothing to do with it and baptized the rest of them quickly and wrapped them in blankets uh, they had brought. It was a grand and glorious day to bring seven new sheep into the fold, and not a one of them suffered any sickness from the cold. The next evening, at the appointed hour, the Bailey family and a half or handful of friends accompanied Robert to the school building for the opening night of the revival. A half hour after the announced starting time, only two additional people came had come. Robert, in his sadness, asked those present if they would join him in prayer, and they go out with him to visit some of the people whose hearts had obviously hardened since his last visit. The reception each received and reported on was a remote one. Why have they grown so cold? Robert pleaded for enlightenment. Uh, not one could tell him for sure, other than to guess the recent prosperity of the area had something to do with it, and he insisted that the school doors be opened again the following night anyway. But the result then was no different. Robert stood before the impoverished altar and pulpit with tears uh, streaming down his face. He looked out over the handful of loyal friends without really seeing them, for his heart was so heavy and his eyes burning with disappointment. He spoke more to himself than to his meager audience, but they came closer to listen. It is an abomination to the Lord, their disobedience, he whispered intently. intensely. A great calamity will befall this community. I will pray God's wrath under upon these people who turn from their creator. Deliver my sheepskin to me, Brother Bailey, and depart from me, all of you, and I will join you for family prayer at home when I have finished. At daylight, the next morning, with a winter fog obscuring the rays of the morning sun, he and Gideon left the village. It's a sad day, Gideon, but somewhere else our sweet Lord will have a job for us. Perhaps we shall never know whether our prayers were heard or whether they are in accord with our Father's will. But woe unto these people if their disobedience is untimely in heaven. Not until the year of 1885 did he hear of the smallpox epidemic that had a few months earlier engulfed the village, taking entire families in its terrible wake. 
For days upon days, he was told, stricken people had lain undiscovered until the spreading stench of the village became so widespread that travelers would detour for miles. He told Eliza about the background of the matter, but he found his real peace alone down the hill from their home by the waters of Walker's Creek. When the power of God seemed specially manifest, he felt both an inward peace and an awesome fear at exactly the same time. He sat on a creek rock near the edge of the stream with some of the villagers watching him and raised his eyes to the heavens. Dear Father, we will never know, for it will not be thy will that we know whether this scourge has come because thy servant asked it in thy name, whatever the true answer may be. Let this and all things be to thy honor and glory, that we, thy people, may not shut out the presence of thy Holy Spirit ever again. In the four years to follow, the spirit of religious revival, and particularly the camp meeting variety, seemed to be dying away. Robert witnessed this with a heavy heart, but fought back with with an increase in personal activity to do his share in trying to overcome such spiritual apathy. People alone could not be blamed, he learned, for some presiding elders and some conference officials in league with them had spoken openly against the continuance of camp meetings. How blasphemous they were in even suggesting that the church had now come out of the mountains and it was time both dignity and piety, joined hands for the ultimate good of the whole church. Couldn't they see that a love of education and culture was becoming the fraud of the age? The very word, dignity, was an abomination in the sight of God. Nothing on earth was really important except the extension of God's kingdom by loving one's neighbor and meditating on God's holy word both day and night. Eliza, if the camp meetings are ever done away with, may the wrath of God fall heavy upon our heads, he said tearfully. So many had been reached in this way, and how much poorer will heaven be if we miss one soul who might come out of the mountains repentant, only to find the log pews empty and the altar rotting away. The world is changing, dear Robert. It is not the same world you knew fifty years ago. Haven't you been telling me that many of the mountain cabins and the trappers' camps that you served so many years ago now stand deserted? Yes, the people have moved from hacked-out clearings and ridges to cleared fields and white houses below. They're a different generation, but it will be a pity if they do not remember their humbler beginnings. Perhaps we can't prevent change. Maybe we shouldn't try. We might even be acting contrary to God's will. He did not often find fault for with the dear wife, whose aging eyes seemed to get kinder with the passing of the years, but such statements left him shaken and sad. If I must do it my, by myself, Eliza, I will keep the camp meetings so full that not one man who dares to call himself a servant of God, will raise one finger to do away with them. 
In July of 1890, Robert prepared to set out more than one month ahead of the scheduled Wabash camp meeting and do the thing he had vowed to do. He would take care of his circuit, but after each engagement he would comb the hills and hollows. Then, when the last week in August came, there would be the equal of a long wagon train from every conceivable direction to the Wabash campground, but he would do more than that. When his travels took him too far out of range, he would send wagon trains of God-seekers to other camp meetings, both within and without the state. Help me get my affairs in order, Liza. I am off at daylight. Together they went through his mail, Eliza commenting now and then, and making note of his special instructions. When she was done, he told her that he was tired and asked that she sit down on the wicker couch so he might lie there and rest his head on, in her lap. Sing to me, Eliza, for in the morning I will be gone. He closed his eyes, and from her body grew heavier with age. The strains of her voice, with new mellowness, reached the depths of his soul. Twilight is stealing over. His plan was to make a complete tour of his regular itinerary, uh, which consisted now of 14 counties. First he would go to Mercer County and work his way northeast until all his West Virginia territory was covered sufficiently well to spread the word. From there he would make a circle to the easternmost counties in the Virginia territory and afterward work west. Well, Gideon, Bluefield will be our starting point, he murmured to the animal as they passed through the village of Narrows and turned up Wolf Creek. Quite contrary to his usual practice, he made no stops along the creek, for he would spend more time with the, these good people later. Suddenly he did stop Gideon and dismounted. After he had removed his hat and began to task for which he had stopped, uh, began the task for which he had stopped, a man he recognized as a lawyer by the name of Staples reigned uh, to a halt beside him. Brother Bob, what in the world are you doing? The way you passed me up and some of our your other old friends along the creek, we thought you must be in a hurry, and here you are, dipping up water from a mud puddle in what looks like a brand new hat. It's the little tadpoles, Brother Staples. You see, the water has receded and they are isolated. The hot sun will have them cooked like stewed chicken in a puddle as shallow as that. Robert continued his task until all the tadpoles had been moved to less isolated, uh, though still shallow water. As a final act of tidying up his rinsed uh, up, he rinsed his hat in the waters of Wolf Creek. Brother Staples, it's a Lord's blessing that you happened by, and I want you to ride along with me. You are going to Bland to court, no doubt, and I want you to advise the Wabash camp meetings everywhere you go. Now, advertise the Wabash camp meetings everywhere you go. Do better than that even. Catch the people inside and outside 
the courthouse and implore the judge to do the same and tell the people there are those among us who would do away with the camp meetings and we must fight them with all of God's might. The other man promised he would, but there was lack of conviction and enthusiasm in his voice. When the two men parted company at Rocky Gap, Robert felt that a bad omen might arise from his solicitation. Gideon, can it possibly be that all the world is right and I am wrong? How my sweet lord changed his face and I am alone, cannot see it. Next time, chapter 16, part 2.